Radical Truth is a podcast produced by TBLI Group and hosted by Robert Rubenstein. TBLI is making the financial system work for all. Our podcasts cover the wide range of ESG and impact investing topics. What it is, why is it booming, is it really helping, is impact regenerative in nature? How will climate change impact investments? There will be regular interviews with thought leaders, some known, some not known, but all brilliant, and we will have engaging conversations with all of them. Can we create an economy based upon well-being? Let's make the financial system work for all. This is Radical Truth. How finance can address the climate challenge with Jochen Wermut, founder and president of Wermut Asset Management. Germany has started a mega fund, a mega fund of fund to fund decommissioning all German nuclear power plants. Jochen Wermut, our next speaker, is on the investment committee of Germany's new 24 billion sovereign wealth fund, Kenfo. He will share his solutions for using finance to address the climate challenge. What is, what roadmap needs to be created to create a net zero carbon economy? How much money will be needed to transform to net zero carbon economy? And are there solutions at scale? This is Radical Truth. Uh, Jochen, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, Jochen Wermut has been active in the sustainable finance space for incredibly long time. He is the, the founder and chairman of the Wermut uh, Asset Management. He is also one of the founders of the Endowment Fund and is on the Investment Committee of a brand new sovereign wealth fund called Kenfo. So for those who are not familiar with you and the work that you're doing, also in the political arena, uh, tell a little bit about yourself. I'll go on mute and give you the, the, the full attention. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And, and thank you for what you're doing. You've been really very important in this space. And um, I love your um, honest, hard-hitting assessment. Uh, my favorite line of yours is I think you prefer uh, bandits to people who pretend to do good but don't, at least the bandits here, you know what you have. So um, um, yeah, thank you for this opportunity. Um, my background, my motivation really started with uh, Chernobyl uh, in my hometown. The uh, Chernobyl cloud officially stopped over the Rhine. So on one side of the Rhine, kids were allowed to play in the grass and the sand pits with their mothers. On the other side, they weren't. On the other side, where you were allowed to play, Lots of people, friends of my mother's, got cancer. One of them asked for uh, euthanasia, help in dying because the pain was so much. In the end, she held on, but it became very clear that uh, environmental issues have a real impact on our lives. And then part, became part of a movement to you know, fight against uh, nuclear arms and nuclear energy in Germany and the Startbahn West at the time. But I learned very quickly that I got pulled away and carried away by the police quicker than I could be noticed. And um, so I thought maybe I'll do what I call a Bloomberg, that is study math, physics, economics, become wealthy and do good things with that money. Um, so at some point, uh, my studies uh, at Brown at Oxford, I met a girl in the street who said, or a woman, young woman, I guess, 
who said that I'm raising money for Greenpeace will give me 10% per month or sorry, 10 pounds per month or a percent of your income. And as I was busy cutting potatoes at the food services, uh, I said, well, obviously the better deal was the 1% uh, than the 10 pounds. And having stuck to that commitment uh, over the years, um, when I was very lucky uh, as an investment banker where I worked for nine months at Deutsche Bank, uh, became one of the largest donors to Greenpeace. And uh, as a result, um, yeah, someone came up to me and said, Jochen, you are donating to Greenpeace, but at the same time, you're investing in things that actually do harm, oil, gas, and coal. And uh, my wife then took me kindly to the north of Russia, where um, you have so many problems in the oil pipelines that oil spills nonstop. But over the winter, it all freezes. And in the spring, when the ice breaks on the rivers, all of the frozen crude oil spills also go onto the rivers. And the river, twice, three times the size of the Rhine, covered 50 centimeters in crude oil. It was a very impressive side on that Greenpeace mission at the time. He dug up the oil, and uh, after about half an hour, you start throwing up uh, because it's obviously poisonous. We went to visit the local hospital and saw, you know, factor 10 higher cancer rates from people who drink water with oil. And uh, we saw the embryo collection and, and I was sold on the idea that obviously I really don't care to pay one cent less for my gasoline in Germany if that causes very painful deaths to people in north of Russia. And um, uh, thanks to this interaction, uh, we started to work with the Tonic Network. There's a gym, Global Impact Investing, like Tonic and TBLI, and started to build, help build with um, the international divest invest movement with Alan Dorsey in the US and uh, the Europeans for divest invest in uh, uh, in Europe. Um, but you asked what we do in terms of finance, Robert, and so let's uh, touch on the finance points. So what had happened was that uh, in my family, my, my grandmother had sold her assets, a, a, a sawmill, and uh, unfortunately, the way that the bankers advised her to use the money, a lot of the money was eaten up by fees and commissions and poor advice. So I had early on read uh, Graham and Dodd's Intelligent Investor, you know, how to invest long-term, sensibly choosing between equities, debt, cash, or as we now look at it, um, not just listed assets, but also illiquid assets such as venture and private equity, infrastructure or real assets such as forest or land, um, water assets. Um, and with that approach in mind, um, after a quick stint at Deutsche Bank, I started investing in 2000 uh, in earnest. We did our first investment into a new solar technology that promised to reduce the cost of solar silicon by factor 10 and make solar available to all. And the reason I came across this is because I had earned a lot of money at Deutsche Bank. I had some physics and math and economics background. And a Nobel Prize winner said to me, you can use your money and experience to bring McDonald's to Moscow. Or you could say, take this technology from Moscow in this case and bring it to the 2 billion people that are living in poverty. If we give them decentralized, cheap power, they're able to have lights at night so they can read. They have energy so they could cook water and wash their children. And we can lift people out of poverty. And that mission really has stayed with me all this time, I believe. We're now in a wonderful time on Earth. Um, and we've been sort of some of the darkest times in a long time. And we have very serious dark forces financing, fighting us very hard 
that as we are about to enter into a new age where we have a real opportunity to live in a world where it doesn't matter where you will be born, you have the chance to have a, a decent life. A life where every hut in the world can have a solar panel leased and they pay a cent or two per kilowatt hour. Um, and as a result, people have much more basic democracy. We don't have to pay money to dictatorships that we don't like. And we can defend our values. Um, the president of Germany, or the first president of modern Germany, said that the Occident is built on three mounts, Golgatha, the uh, mount where Jesus was cr crossed for the idea that even the Son of God may be crossed, the first may be the last, living a life of service and loving thy neighbor like yourself. Secondly, on the Acropolis for democracy, and thirdly, on the Capitol in Rome for rule of law. So if you want to defend these values and create a world fair for everybody, we have to really get what we call the Green Industrial Revolution done. We have to have an energy transition, a transport transition, a finance transition, an agricultural transition, a circular economy transition, an AI, IT transition, and a world economy where the externalities of what we do uh, are really reflected in the price. So, for example, if I buy a cheap electric car battery, but I have a four-year-old digging a hole somewhere in Africa to get my lithium to me that should really be properly priced, and we need to properly price what that life of the child is worth. Um, so that's the history of where we came from. So the first investment we made in about 2000 in a, this new solar technology, we quickly found out that even though I was a wealthy man after having fought and won a lawsuit against Deutsche Bank, I had no chance to stand up against Siemens and Bakashimi and Motorola who didn't want the new technology to come in because it would destroy their existing business. So I quickly learned about the power of incumbents. And to address this, we, we set up a, a hedge fund initially because that was easy to sell at the time, a long-short strategy, which would invest in companies that were resource-efficient and companies that would fight corruption and a clear commitment not to do corruption, mainly in Eastern Europe, which is where I had advised the Yeltsin government at the time. We did very well, and we learned that uh, when you show two or three or four years of outstanding returns, uh, in this case, we had a 10-year track record of 30% IRRs, and obviously everybody thought, oh, great. Then you have money piling in. So even though people may think greed is bad, it is a human trait, and therefore if we can manage to have good returns and thereby attract lots of capital in the right direction on top of having good moral reasons. That's, I think, the winning formula that I've experienced. Um, over time, we, we also diversified from just equities um, uh, into other asset classes, but maybe two words on equities. Uh, in terms of impact investing, some people say as an equity investor, you're far away, you can't really influence management. However, we've seen over and over again that A, a divestment decision is very powerful, and B, even if you hold just one share, but you get a coalition of shareholders to put forward shareholder resolutions, you can really be impactful as an equity holder as well. The way we invest uh, today is we, on a family office basis, look to invest across all asset classes with positive impact. On the equity side, we do that by going short uh, companies, including oil, gas, and coal companies, and combustion engine uh, producers, and so forth, and going long more positive companies, excluding oil, gas, and coal companies. So we are a fossil-free um, investor, basically. Um, then going along the, the value chain or the, the asset classes, um, we've been, I've been very, very impressed. Our first venture investment, that didn't go so well, but ever since, uh, by the idea that there are companies that can really 
have a positive impact on the world and deliver super profits. The Singularity University calls those exponential organizations. So companies which can grow exponentially and have a huge impact on the world. And uh, to give you two examples, uh, we've now invested in a company um, uh, which will make solar wafers with 80% less CO2 emissions. I don't know if you're aware, but putting solar energy into Sweden, for example, increases the CO2 footprint of the Swedish power sector because they have so much hydropower, uh, which is much lower footprint than, than, than solar. The new approach to make solar has the potential to save 80% of the CO2 emissions of the solar system, and it has the potential to get us to twice the energy per solar system in the end. Uh, so you have, instead of two cents per kilowatt hour in Dubai, one cent, instead of four cents in Germany, two cents per kilowatt hour in levelized cost of energy. And those for the same amount of money, we can double the speed at which we get to renewables. Another company which we haven't looked at yet, haven't invested in yet, but we're about to invest, we hope, is one which completely blew my mind once I've gone through it. Basically, if you uh, if you know uh, Russian roulette, it's uh, one in six bullets. If you do regular roulette, it's one in 37 bullets. Uh, if you take geothermal energy today, it's worse than regular roulette. So only on 3% of the world's surface can get geothermal energy at commercial terms. And that's because the drilling uh, depth that we can achieve commercially today is three to five ki kilometers. When you drill on the top, only one thousandth of the energy hits the bottom. Then after drilling one meter, you have to pull everything back out and do the next meter. And a smart scientist in Bratislava has come up with the idea of putting the power to the bottom of the hole uh, with a long wire, and then to have a contactless drill head that doesn't have to be exchanged. And those have the ability to drill 10 kilometers deep. And with that, have geothermal power, not on 3% of the world's surface, but 70. And now with that, if you apply the global oil and gas drilling technology, you can, within 10 years, replace any oil and gas demand that's still in the IEA forecast, i.e. drilling 100,000 geothermal wells a year. Within 10, 15 years, we can supply 100% renewable power to the world by 2035. And that's an amazing opportunity. And I just wanted to highlight that these exist. Um, both of them are at a stage which are, according to the NASA stage of uh, technology readiness, where tennis launch of the rocket, uh, or, or scaling of many rockets at four or five, so, so still somewhat risky. But with 100 million euros or so investment, these companies can go to proof of concept, be scaled globally and do a lot. So venture is, is one very important area, uh, and we'll come to solutions, how to get more money into venture quickly. At the COP26, uh, sorry, coming up, uh, we will hopefully go back to the COP21 the resolution where governments are committed to double the research spending for venture solutions um, to, to fix our problems globally. Um, but unfortunately, it's better having done that in five years ago, almost nothing has happened. Most of the money has gone to you know, existing large companies like Siemens, General Motors, doing boring stuff and entrepreneurs, new companies, ideas from emerging markets or for emerging markets or anywhere outside the US or UK really haven't had any access to this money. So we need a solution for that. And the solution, I think, is a global climate venture fund series, which will work as a funder fund supporting climate venture funds globally at the pre-seed, seed and late stage level, and which will also act as a seeder of new funds because many there are many clean tech funds left after the 2008 financial crisis. And thirdly, they will do direct investments. And the way this will work is by allowing uh, the governments to come in instead of giving money away for research where they get no return, 
put money in and offer the private sector in a preferred return. That's how the Israelis built the uh, Yozma system. So for every shekel invested by Israeli, the US government matched with a shekel and said, you can have your money back first before I can have my money back. This meant 50% first loss protection. And on the upside then, the government said, listen, I'm happy with 3% return, which is okay because I achieve a climate goal as well. And you private investor can have the rest. So a 10% average return turns into 3% for the government, 17% for the private sector. And with that, we can really mobilize lots of capital to venture, which is what's needed to get the great ideas we have around the world finally financed. The next step is, is infrastructure. And there it's very important to distinguish between pretend to be impactful and being really impactful. Uh, the coalition of, of net zero asset owners, which aims to have zero emissions in their portfolio. Now, you can have a 100% cash position, you have zero emissions. You can also have a 100% wind park portfolio, you have zero emissions. But most likely will have had also zero impact. Because if I buy an existing asset, an existing wind park, I've had no impact, I've taken no risk. What we're missing in this world, we have all these trillions of dollars available. We don't have the money needed in the risk area, be it the business development risk, the venture risk, the project development risk. And so we need to have money in this area. And for that, we need people to distinguish between greenwashing sustainability and true impact. True impact is when before I come, it doesn't exist. And after I come, I had a positive impact. Um, and moving on to real assets, um, the, um, yeah, the, the biggest opportunities that exist, of course, is to counter, uh, to, to, to benefit from the huge, vast potential of this earth in terms of growth of trees, or in fact, uh, growth of, uh, of um, um, yeah, all sorts of plants, not least the marijuana plant is a very, uh, very positive one. It grows four times a year and captures lots of CO2, and you can use it to build buildings or make clothes much more sustainable than we do today. So with natural growth of forests, for example, afforestation, we can capture as much as 10% um, of global emissions for the next 10 years, allowing us to get to net zero quickly enough to survive as a species. So that's sort of the asset classes covered. Um, in terms of what we do as a family office, we invest cash, bonds, equities, venture capital, infrastructure, and real assets with positive impact. We do not do anything that doesn't have a positive impact. Um, then um, I have a role as the investment committee member of Germany's new sovereign wealth fund. We're trying to deploy 24 billion euros. And again, because the money came from the nuclear industry and must pay for the you know, decommissioning of nuclear plants and the storage of waste, our aim is to invest sustainably, not in nuclear, and do so with the aim to yeah, deliver a decent 5% average return over the next 100 years. Now, in terms of, I think, Robert, that's sort of what we do. Um, now, the topic is how can we move the capital that uh, we need to move? Um, and I think I touched on most points that I was going to touch on already. First of all, I think there are cases of market failure where blended finance helps the government say, I give the private sector a preferred return so retail investors or conservative institutional investors can come behind the government and the trillions we need can be put to work. Secondly, and that's of course the, the elephant in the room, is the, the CO2 price, right? So the, the German government's environmental agency has calculated 
in international cooperation that the damages one ton of CO2 causes while it's active for 100 years in terms of health. So people get cancer from uh, breathing in car exhausts again. Uh, but also in terms of climate is about 640 euros per ton. 640 euros. That's a huge number. And it's a number very few people have heard, but it's the truth, right? It's the ultimate number. What people have heard is scientists for futures and climate uh, activists for futures, sorry, Fridays for futures, grandmas for futures calling for 180 euros a ton. 180 euros a ton though, is the 640 euros over 100 years discounted at some 3% per annum. So if you lived in a normal world with 3% interest rates, if you gave me 180 euros today, I could put it on my bank account and I would get the 640 to pay for the damages over the next 100 years. But as most of you know, at least in Europe and in large parts of the world today, we live at negative zero interest rates. So we need to look at the true damages, which is 640 euros a ton. Now the question is, of course, what sort of price do we need for what purposes? As an economist, the efficient price is the 640 euros a ton. If every time I admit a ton of CO2, I need to pay 640, I will allocate my capital, my personal habits effectively, efficiently. Now, some people argue that to stop coal, it's enough to go for 50 euros a ton. To really move the economy in the right direction, you need 100 euros a ton. That is really key to moving the capital. If we do not have a clear carbon price, we'll have a huge issue. All the money we have piled into the economy and the central banks in the world, so far going to oil, gas, coal companies, because these are the emitters of large corporate bonds and very little money is going to real climate solutions because we don't have a proper CO2 price. So that's why I've taken a step uh, similar to what Tom Steyer has done, but he's of course a much larger scale, which is to say aside from investing money into various impactful areas and trying to raise capital to move it in the right direction, we also have to have political action. That is, we have the technologies, we have the, the capital, but we lack the proper financial incentives given by a C2 price. And in that regard, um, I've decided to, to sponsor not just Greenpeace, but also the Green Party in Germany, and to set up a foundation called German Zero, which I would invite you to uh, also join or support, or scale, copy globally. I hope you need to have a, a French zero, a European zero, a US zero, and a global zero, where this German zero organization does the following. It, it aims to raise as much money as possible for the upcoming German elections on the 27th of September to promote the idea that we should be climate neutral by 2035 from any candidate for parliament, never mind what party. He should, we should, uh, we will put in place a law, a climate law that we fix in the constitution. So you don't have someone being about CO2 price and reducing it and putting it back in where the new government comes and so forth. It needs stability. And we're endorsing the approach that was first proposed by Al Gore in 1993, believe it or not, which is called a climate dividend. Many people say you can't charge CO2 because our economy will collapse. It's hard on the poor people. It's hard on people who are in rural areas who have to travel to work and have to pay more for gasoline. That's complete nonsense. Can easily be addressed by saying I tax CO2 uh, at the border or when people emit CO2 at the externality, but all the tax income I give to population pro rata. That is, everybody gets the same amount of money every month. And with that, you can pay the additional costs you have from CO2 emissions. So that's, I think, the key to success in the German elections, in the French elections, in the European elections, in the US, and I hope we get there soon. And I think with that, we should move on to questions, Robert. Yes. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I, ha I had a couple of questions. Um, uh, the price of 640, you're saying we sh this is the price that CO2 emissions should be paying, 640 euro a ton now, not in 100 years. Um, how, which politician is willing to support you on that? Well, I mean, the, uh, there's always the big question on the so-called shock therapy or gradual approach, right? And, uh, and if you look at the, the odds of climate change, they're so horribly stacked against us. No, mind, no person in their right mind would not do what needs to be done, right? It's like if I told you you have a 30% chance of your, your house blowing up uh, tomorrow morning, would you get insurance against that? Or would you fix your gas pipe? Yes, you would. And all your climate change, we don't. Um, and then the second question is, of course, the, the, do you do a gradual approach or a, 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 a rap, rapid approach? And the reason people are against a rapid approach is that they say there's lots of social pain. The coal miners, the oil and gas sector workers will lose their jobs, and that's terrible. No doubt about it. But the issue with the gradual approach is that it can be much more painful. So uh, the Swedes were considering, should we switch from the left lane driving to right lane driving as they joined the European Union and they built a bridge to Denmark, right? They used to be like the English and the Japanese on the wrong side of the road, not on the right side. Anyway, as the debate went, and this is sort of a consensual-based gradual society, you know, one leading proposal was we should do it step by step, right? First, you move the trucks, and half a year later, you move the regular cars, which doesn't really work, right? Um, so, <laughs> so the, so the, uh, um, I think it's better to face reality right away, to be honest about the damages caused, and not to pretend that uh, you know burning oil and gas doesn't cost anything, or clear cutting trees cost anything. Put the full price in, and give the money back to the people so they can pay for it. So there is no social harm because if you're a relatively poor household, you tend to consume less oil, gas, and coal in terms of heating, traveling, and so forth. And in fact, a carbon dividend supported by 29 Nobel Prize winners, 2,000 US economists will make you richer if you consume less CO2. And so, yes, there are not enough courageous politicians, but hopefully we can deliver some by creating a global movement where people pay for the damage that they cause. The EU constitution says you must pay for the damage you cause. I, I agree with that. I saw it in the previous Dutch elections is that everyone was, that was confronting politicians with the issue of sacrifice and nobody was pushing the idea of industrial resilience uh, by uh, becoming much more resource efficient and low carbon economy. Ultimately, we become much more resilient and thus stronger going forward. But the focus was so much on sacrifice. How are you with your funding of uh, kind of uh, climate challenge heroes? in the French and German election. Do you hear anybody talking about resilience or are they still trying to deflect the sacrifice story? Yeah, so, so I don't know what we've done wrong or why we, we always talk about the bad things of climate change. That's why it's not sexy and hasn't sold for, I don't know how many years now, 1990, 30 years, yeah. Terrible, the world's, world's worst ever sales effort. The answer is you can move, lift people around the world out of poverty and create a fair society for all of us, a world of abundance by going for resource efficiency. And what's also very crucial is that historically, 
whoever had access to the cheapest form of energy first became the global power and determined the values according to which everybody else had to live. So the British invented the steam engine and built the British Empire. They missed the next industrial revolution, which is when steam engines were replaced by oil and gas combustion engines, and the Soviet Union and uh, the USA became the next global power. Now, in the current situation, Germany, Europe, and the US have followed what I call the Kodak business model. Kodak invents the digital camera, says, great idea, dismisses it, and goes bankrupt. We in Germany invented the energy transition, but we dismissed it, we blocked it, we come up with laws in 2021 under, under Chancellor Merkel with more of a distance between a, between a wind park and a house than between a, wind, a house and a nuclear power plant, and we outlaw co-location of agriculture, wind, and solar. It's illegal to have it in the same spot. Complete nonsense. So we're consciously destroying what we invented. And surprise, surprise, today, 95% of solar panels are made in China. Every month, as many electric cars are getting put on the road in China as uh, we have in total in Germany, so or Europe, uh, is and America is way behind. And if we do not quickly uh, embrace the new technologies, we will fall behind and become an irrelevant little village of uh, citizens that used to be relevant in the past. So it's very crucial for the welfare of our people, the competitiveness of our economy. Of course, if you have solar power at half the price as a condition, you will do much better. Okay. So in Germany was the question, how are the people thinking? Uh, we were doing very well. The Green Party was the strongest party in the polls. And since then, concrete actions have taken place. Gazprom has donated 60 million euros to a climate change foundation in the north of Germany, which in fact promotes natural gas. Hundreds of millions are going into troll attacks on any liberal, social, green ideas. And we're having the same sort of attack on the German election, the climate election, as we saw in the US election. And that's why we need to stand up and say, we as citizens need to raise capital to defend our democracy and to defend the truth because fake news about you know, electric cars being uh, uh, you know, more expensive than regular cars or an amazing campaign by Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank has a new hashtag, hashtag positive impact. They mean interesting things. For example, their bank, BHF Bank, is now putting out a flyer to 80 million Germans saying climate change and a new oil heater work together. That's there. So they, they're completely in space. And uh, so there's real money. The old economy is fighting. They're paying to discredit the new forces in Germany. And we urgently need to pull together in the world because it, the way the German election will end will affect the European Union as much as the French election in May next year, where Le Pen, the conservative or fascist, may take over. Um, so it's really, really important because if we get Germany right, then we get the EU right, and then we could have a global regime for CO2 prices as we need it. Okay. I'm going to start taking some of the questions. So um, Jeremiah want, had a question. May I ask about the issue of litigation in your lawsuit against Deutsche Bank? I don't know if you're on a, under a gag order that you're not allowed to talk about that anymore. I found the story very fascinating. So if you're willing to share, you have an audience I would love to hear. Yes. Um, so I, um, I, I wrote my master's thesis on East German and West German unification, and therefore I was an expert on how, how Russia could change from or Ukraine or Kazakhstan from planned economy to market economy, and I became an advisor to the governments in Eastern Europe, and as such I became attractive to Deutsche Bank to be their 
promoter of raising capital from the West to finance the transition in Eastern Europe. And my contract with Deutsche Bank was that I would get a third of the profits that I would generate. I was 27 at the time. The assumption was maybe that I would make a million and get a 300,000 euro bonus. As it turned out, you know, we built a bank with 147 people and we raised 8 billion euros in capital. Commissions were 2% and the bank collected 160 million profit. So with my math degree, I figured I should be paid 53 million. They then attributed to various costs and I was only due 37 million, a team, of course. Um, as, it, as it happened, um, the, yeah, before they were paid, they paid it, they dismissed me. And I was then left without much of a, yeah, uh, well, I was a bit disappointed in humanity because for my mind, to honor a contract, Pacta Sun Savanda is an important value. And uh, I tried to find people to, you know, take my case against Deutsche Bank, but very few law firms want to pick it up because it's such a big institution. Very um, few people were willing to be my witnesses because they needed their job at Deutsche Bank to feed their families. And it was a very, very tough time in my life. I saw the difference between true friends and not true friends. In the end, people who had nothing to gain came out as witnesses. And a small Jewish law firm called Mishkon Reyes in London said, this is a David against Goliath fight. We're the ones for it. And uh, let us do it on a success basis. <laughs> and uh, happily enough, uh, you know, there were good people at Deutsche Bank who realized, uh, first of all, tried to destroy my reputation with all sorts of slander. Uh, highlights being that I was a member of the U.S. ballroom dancing team, and as such, I didn't just teach the general population at Brown how to ballroom dance, but also the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Student Association. Therefore, given my uncertainty or my orientation, I couldn't be relied upon as a witness either, which didn't go over well with the judge, I think, so uh, the Germans could take some advice there. Anyway, in the end, we, we, we settled amicably. Uh, once it became clear, I think, that we had very clear contract and very clear witnesses and very clear requirements. And the money from that, uh, I, I then started was the basis of my, I shared it with my team who was left was the basis of the wealth. That, uh, but it was a hard battle. And I have to say from that, I learned a lot about lawsuits and we have fantastic lawsuits recently. <laughs> the victory against uh, the, uh, the, British, the English government, sorry, the, the Dutch government that they have to do more on climate change and most remarkably, the victory of Fridays for Futures against the German government. The Constitutional Court of Germany told our chancellor, our government, that they are actually infringing on the constitution. They're infringing on the future freedoms of our children and younger people today by not taking enough action on climate change today. It's an absolutely beautiful court decision. And also on primetime TV in Germany, we now have a, a, a story that says that Mr. Schröder and Mrs. Merkel, a physicist by training, should be accused in Den Haag in front of the Court of Human Rights, not just for not doing enough on climate change, but for misleading the world on what they did on climate change. They claim to have climate goals and go for them, but we prove over and over again that every time the EU came up with goals, the German government, pushed by the German car industry, undermined these goals. So we, for example, issue green green plaquettes to people who drive a Porsche Cayenne because it's less emissions than a Hummer. And, uh, but to, to get this story right and to get it, we need to tell the truth. For that, we need support. We need anti-troll armies. We need positive troll armies. We need to really do a lot and raise money for this election to not have fake news win it. Thank you. Fabian wanted to know, in terms of government functions, do you think long-term research without profit focus and the best infrastructure, no real profit orientation, 
more infrastructure for companies and citizens should be the number one focus of the government as the market always has a medium term profitability interest versus venture capital speculation will come automatically as we can currently see in the hydrogen sector, for example. Yeah. Okay. So um, this brings us to the mission innovation case, right? So 20 governments committed in Paris to double their government spending from 15 billion euros a year to 30 billion euros a year. And yet very few fundamental research projects have worked. So I'm a big believer in governments not trying to find the best technology, not trying to determine what fundamental research to do, but to say, you know, if you, Fabienne, want to, you know, do research on nuclear fission or something like that, all power to you, I match whatever you do. I really believe that um, there is money in the market that's happy to wait 10 or 100 years, longer money as well, and the government can provide incentives for making money available long term. Um, I think the biggest problem we have so far is that there's not enough venture capital. It's true that venture capital sometimes has a 10-year rise and we need maybe 20 or 30-year rise in funds or, or structures. That's also true. But I am... Um, having lived in Germany the last three years in the, gov in the government organization, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and having seen the German government declare, first of all, when COVID hit, we need no masks, and declare uh, we will use the treatment that Trump uh, used and then declare we shouldn't spend money on any vaccines and then declare, not declare, all the bribes the members of the government took to buy a certain type of fake masks. I really believe it's very important to have an independent media, checks and balances and have a market force in there. Just government spending, I'm very skeptical of. Christine wanted to know, could you please comment on green financing for business with relation to bonds or the EU green deal co-financing? There's now 95 billion euro for startups in Europe through the European Innovation Council. Um, what is your experience with all of these initiatives that are trying to stimulate um, SMEs and startups in disruptive technology? Uh, in the, uh, particularly as it relates to the Green New Deal, do you think it's you think this serious or curious? Serious or curious? Curious. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have to say I'm extremely impressed by the quality of, of of many of the civil servants in the European Union. That's really it's 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 a it's a Wolfgangsheim a. Uh, an ideal society of really smart people from all over Europe and really good people work there. And they've come up with a framework for the Green New Deal, for the taxonomy, which was truly outstanding when it started, right? It was absolutely brilliant. It would have gotten us very far away. Then what happens is that the lobbyists get involved. And unfortunately, for example, Sandrine dixon de Clef, the head of the Club of Rome, or Astrid Manrod at the European Climate Foundations, they basically say, there's four of us against a thousand lobbyists well-funded from the oil and gas industry. So for example, one idea is to introduce a carbon adjustment tax. If someone produces a piece of steel with lots of CO2 emissions, they should be taxed at the border, right? Big announcement, everybody believes it, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody's very worried, trying to learn how to reduce CO2 emissions. Then the lobbyists get to work and they start niggling on the definitions. They say, 
if the steel company in China itself just buys hydrogen, uh, sorry, hydropower uh, with zero emissions to power its uh, plant, the emissions of that plant is actually zero. And when they import the steel into Europe, there should be zero tax. EU loves it. Uh, we have border adjustment tax. It just happens to be zero on all the goods we import. Of course, what you should do, you should say the average power mix in the economic region of China should be taken. If not, they will use extremely dirty coal fire plants for domestic production and 100% clean for that that's exported to Europe. And these are the fine differences where you really need smart people and you need people to stand up and say no more of these lies, no more of the greenwashing. Um, one of my greatest shocks, of course, uh, you all know about is the the German diesel scandal, the Volkswagen, or Germany in general, stands for honest, hardworking people. I always like to say, please remember that until 1999 in Germany, it was both legal to bribe abroad and tax deductible, right? So 1999. So, um, so with that context, maybe you're not so positive anymore. But anyway, so Volkswagen cheated lots of people around the world. Unfortunately, in finance, the same thing has just happened. We had an announcement by Allianz publicly that they would divest from coal. And we built the divest movement globally from 10 million to 30 trillion nearly today. People committing to divest some oil, gas and coal. We counted Allianz happily. In Allianz, we had some smart kids who said, okay, we'll sell a coal-free fund to our clients. So the likes of Fridays for Futures, Grandmas for Futures bought this Allianz coal-free fund. And then a primetime TV show came to me and said, have a look at this portfolio. What do you think this company is? And I say, well, RWE is the largest coal producer in Germany. And that's the big position in this coal-free fund. Very interesting. How can that be? Well, it turns out that Allianz at the time defined that coal-free for them, and you have to have a limit, otherwise you can't define it, is not just no coal revenue, but up to 30% revenue from coal defines, according to Allianz, coal-free. Now, that's fine, but if I buy an alcohol-free beer, and that's 30% vol, <laughs> no problem. And if I buy a, 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 a PG zero movie for my daughter, who's eight years old, and it's 30% porn, that's not okay, right? And that is just, the risk is that we lose all trust in, in any decency if we do not label things what they really are. And so it's vital that uh, we stick to the original proposals on Green New Deal, on the taxonomy, and we don't let it get watered down by cynical interests, you know, I think in the case of Allianz, it may have been a genuine mistake because you have to have a limit somewhere. Tonga Energy used to be 100% coal. It's now the biggest 100% renewable firm in, in Denmark. So at some point, you could say maybe up to 5% coal revenue, okay, and a plan to go to 100%. But 30%, I think, was not cool. And to sell a coal-free fund is just outrageous. Um, Sabang uh, had a question. Can forestry projects be traded for cannabis or marijuana for carbon capture where it's not feasible to do forestry projects. Is there a strong appetite for investors for cannabis or marijuana product for carbon capture projects and climate ad adaptation? Um, so first of all, uh, forestry, if you look over hundreds of years, is one of the better asset classes because trees simply grow all the time. So while this bust and boom every 15 or 7 or 10 years in the financial markets, forestry teams to deliver. Now, again, by an existing forest, you're not adding anything to society or the world, and you don't help the, 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 the clear-cutting of, of, of forests. But if you plant new plantations, 
you have a tremendous effect. There are 900 million hectares of potential new plantations globally. They can capture CO2 at a price of just six euros per ton in the best cases. Remember, 640 is the damage a ton causes. At less than 100, I can build a tree, plant a tree in a place like Northern Australia or New Zealand. Uh, and if that's the case, that means also I can go into emerging markets. I go to Africa and in, into Brazil. And even if there's a currency devaluation by 50%, and if there's a political regime change, whatever it is, you, you, you have a very, very cheap way of, of, of growing, capturing CO2. Now, I thought that was the, the jackpot. But then I looked at cannabis. And in fact, cannabis, uh, it grows four times on the same spot. Uh, you can harvest it and grow again. In, in many areas where the tree grows gradually over 20 years, right? But the key thing to remember is as the key grows, it captures tree grows and kind of it captures CO2. If I then burn the tree or cut the tree and burn the tree, or if I smoke the cannabis, unfortunately, all of the capture CO2 goes back into the air. So the only way that we can actually capture and keep it captured is if we move, for example, from concrete building industry to eight-story high wood buildings. Mm. And we use the cannabis not to smoke it, unfortunately, mm. uh, for some fans, uh, the, uh, but to make uh, clothes out of it or um, cars or uh, building materials. Then the cannabis industry has a huge potential. Uh, Paul wanted to know, what is your opinion of using accounting rules through things like SASB for getting the externality costs onto company balance sheets cost of healthcare for diabetes of sugar food and drink manufacturers. That's brilliant, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's clear that the killer of our time is diabetes and, uh, you know, the, the likes of, of Unilever and, uh, and uh, you know, Nestle are, are the main culprits here. And they use very serious professional experts on psychology and on, on, on nutritionists to seduce us to, you know, for example, the milk or chocolate, we can never just eat one piece. We'll always eat the whole piece of chocolate because it's added vanillin, which reminds us of the mother milk that we drink as a baby. Um, and the beauty of the, of the new taxonomy and the beauty of what's coming in Europe is that I believe the time is over where people can simply talk about risk and return. We're in a new world where there'll be risk, return, and impact. Nobody will be allowed from next year onward to sign a balance sheet that doesn't say, at least on the CO2 side, Here's my plan how to get to zero emissions. <clears throat> and I have either measured or not measured my CO2 impact. And going forward, I believe the new international accounting standards will be that we have to explicitly state all of the externalities that a company causes all the way in its supply chain, in its own operations, but also in its clients. And once we've covered all of that, we will be in a new set of accounting standards, which is risk, return, and impact. Seems fantastic and impossible, but Sir Ronald Cohen says before the financial crisis in the 1930s, there were no common accounting standards at all. Well, I could make an operation and say it's profitable. Robert do the same thing and say it's loss-making. And that crisis got us the new rules. We are the people. We determine the rules, and the impact will come. Uh, Aaron wanted to know, should financial institutions be awarded premium financing rates for being fully ESG compliant. Yeah, so on ESG, uh, unfortunately, or for, let's say, first of all, it's good news that people have moved from very hesitantly adopting UN principles of responsible investments and the UN compact rules to now a situation where as much as 100 trillion 
or even 140 trillion have committed to ESG rules. So lots of people are saying, I want to have good environmental, social and governance rules and companies invest in. That's good news. And that's sort of a necessary condition for a decent world, right? You don't want to be investing in an oil company that spoils water in the north of Russia and people die of cancer. Unfortunately, the way most people use ESG is as a complete greenwashing effort. So every day, says The Economist, there are two ESG funds being launched and nothing is actually uh, being done in many ways. What they do is they do so-called best in class. That is, you'll find an ESG sustainable fund, British Petroleum, for example. They are 95% ESG compliant, good news, but unfortunately, they are contributing to climate change. They have a clearly negative impact. So while ESG is necessary, it's not sufficient. To be sufficient, you've got to the next step and go to impact. What's the impact? And if a financial institution has positive impact demonstratively, then I think we should have reward them with lower taxes, less VAT, or lower interest rates. But ESG themselves is, especially if you use best in class, it is outrageous. So best in class means I go to the Moabit prison here down the road in Berlin, and I say, let's have a talk to the serial killer ward. And the nicest guy last week gets out for the weekend, right? That is Nobody would do this in the right mind. And we do it in finance. We let people out, which are demonstratively destroying the future of humanity, which demonstratively, according to the German Constitutional Court, are infringing on the freedom, the right of life of citizens of this world. So this is no longer okay. We've got to stop this and move from ESG to impact. I agree. I re- I've found that ESG has just become a death march in the wrong direction, but slower. I had an, an experience. I visited a family office in um, Singapore. They wanted to speak to me and I opened the door and I'm shocked because there's a big plaque that says coal trading, oil trading and gas trading. But this is where this family had made their money in the past and they want to get away from that. They want to move all their assets into things that fundamentally improve society or the environment. And they said to me, Robert, we don't understand how is it that companies like Shell and BP score so well on the Dow Jones sustainability index when their core business is environmental destruction and companies like PepsiCo, which is diabetes and Unilever, which is, you know, semi toxic cosmetics and processed food. How do they score so well? And here was a family office that wanted to follow you and was told you have to go ESG. And they looked at it and says, this doesn't make any sense. This is not fixing anything. Uh, so I, I, um, I agree with you. We're coming toward the end of the hour. Uh, and I'm very confident of your time because I know you're really busy. How can this audience help you? Uh, also with your initiative around financing political campaigns to be much more pro- proactive on climate. What can what can this audience do that's listening now and that's also watching later and or watching the streaming going on? Well, first of all, I think we need to realize, um, as Margaret Mead said, that never underestimate the power of a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens to change the course of the world. In fact, She says, it has never been done any other way, right? So this small group can change the world. We have it in our hands. Uh, We need to realize that just as we move from feudalism to civil society, we can move from 
savage or cowboy capitalism today to a civil capitalism where we say, listen, it's fine to have capitalist mechanism, but you please do not exclude the externalities. They need to be fully priced, right? We have the ability, thanks to social media today, to know where the goods came from or, or satellite television and where they're going. So let's move to civil, civil capitalism where we actually pay for the damages that we cause. It's very simple. And it can be done by each of us moving their own capital, by each of us thinking about, am I an investor? And the answer is, if you have 50 euros in your bank account, you are an investor. And you can ask your bank where it's lending its money to. And very few banks will be able to give you a green bank account. They'll say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't do it. Well, then switch, switch to a bank that offers green bank accounts. If you buy bonds, go for green bonds. If you go for equities, exclude the fossil uh, fossil fuel companies on the long side. If you go to venture, don't just bring McDonald's to somewhere, but look for ventures that can change the world. If you go for infrastructure, don't just buy a standing park, but do something new. And if you go for real assets, plant a tree, right? Or plant cannabis, if you want to. Uh, so that, that's, I think, and I think it's very important to understand that the, the global climate challenge is about $1 trillion missing in investments a year. That sounds really, really large. But in a meeting with the Pope, I was very, very lucky for him to get the idea very quickly. But that wasn't so much because one trillion is just 1% of global GDP. And 1% of the average income of a European is 50,000 euros. Of that 1%, 500 euros. He says, wow, that's the price of a fake Gucci bag, right? It's <laughs> not a big deal. I mean, 500 euros, I mean, yes, it's a lot of money for some people. But in Europe, for us to invest, 500 euros each per year and earn decent returns, 8 to 10%. We in Europe alone have um, trillions on our cash accounts. If we just use 6% of those trillions and invest them in climate solutions, we can stop climate change single-handedly just in Europe and globally for sure. We just need 1% of your annual income to be invested and we're done. So it's definitely doable. What I'd love to have support with is the idea that we do campaigns globally, not for one party, but for any candidate to say, I'm in favor of introducing a CO2 dividend. So everybody gets paid income from the government, from a, from a carbon tax and carbon border adjustment. So people have a socially fair move to an economy which reflects the price on carbon. Um, and for that, um, GermanZero.de is, is, the, is, the, is the initiator. They created now a draft law to go into the German constitution, a plan to get to zero emissions by 2035. But we want to scale this. We want you to please do French zero and Belgian zero and Taiwan zero and China zero and US zero and global zero. You know, it is possible within 10, 15 years to get to net zero emissions. And whoever gets there first will have the ability to, to, to promote their own values globally. So I'd be very happy if, if you reach out and, and we can do something together. Um, we're very lucky that uh, some excellent campaign managers from the US uh, are happy to help us as well. So um, any help is needed. 27th of September is election in Germany, three months to go. Um, any help is welcome. Okay, we'll get the message out there. Uh, I want to take uh, a group selfie if that's okay with you uh you can send it to sasha to show that you're actually working today <laughs> uh, just, just wave to the to the camera and say take the photo and then i'll send everyone a copy of the group photo edit as it collates 
and adds all of the different photos from all the different uh, people. So it's just taking my photo now and then it'll match with the um, with everyone else. Uh, I want to thank uh, uh, Jochen. Thank you so much for your brilliant insight and for your perseverance and for this new dimension of trying to change the political landscape to focus more on um, climate. I want to thank our entire production crew for making this webinar possible. Sam, our producer, crypto genius and ramen critic, Ricky, my absolute better half with no filter. Xi Jinping, our head of transparency and integrity. Donald Trump, our gender diversity lead and dog whisperer. Vladimir Putin, our head of conflict resolution. Jeff Bezos, our human resources and full tax compliance leader. Mark Rutte, our memory expert, and Elon Musk, our humility coach. Thank you all very, very much. If you want your photo added, just take a photo of yourself, and then I'll add that to here. If not, I'm going to shut this down. Jochen, thank you so much, and we'll help as much as we can to get this message out there. This is really good, and I will, I, I will connect you with um, Kat Taylor and Tom Steyer. You stay thank well. You. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you to our guests and audience for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe where you listen to your podcast. This was Radical Truth. Stay safe. Stay safe.